Hey, thanks for joining us on the Comic Syllabus Podcast, where we read widely and we dig deep, um, analyzing the array of graphic novels and comics out there to try to understand their reflection and impact on society and culture. My name is Paul. I'm an English teacher and a literacy researcher here today to talk about Travis Dandros, excuse me, (laughs) King of King Court from Drawn and Quarterly. Um, We're going to look at that book in a minute. Uh, In addition, afterwards, we're going to try out a new segment. I used to do segments on this show. Uh, (laughs) A new segment called NCBD Notes or New Comic Book Day Notes. It's a tip of my hat to the, um, you know, the new comics that have come out recently in the last few weeks and a few that are looking forward with a few sort of thoughts um, and observations Um, I think that comics is an exciting medium to watch, and I want to attend to what's being represented on the scene of comics, um, independent comics, and and to read that culture critically, Um, not not doing reviews and not evaluating. I'm not here to say buy this or or not that, um, but to really kind of take some soundings of the of the sort of you know strains of music of the of the comics culture and that's why i call it ncbd notes see what i did there uh it's <laughs> sounds like the worst name ever but believe me i had some worse even worse ideas <laughs> but we'll get to new comic book day notes later on uh, first i want to talk about king of king court by travis dondro um it is a heartbreaking visual narrative of tragic beauty about um, the author, um, the creator, Travis Dandro, Dandro, um, not sure how you pronounce that, forgive me, uh, growing up as a kid um, with his, his mother, his step-siblings, and his stepfather, but very much revolving um, in, as a narrative uh, around his mercurial real father, um, biological father, who we meet early on, and we soon realize from the very opening pages is a very loving and doting man who is a drug addict and who is susceptible to uh, a a really dark temper um, and even abuse. And if this sounds similar to um, Hey Kiddo, uh, Jarek Krasatska's memoir of last year, um, I think that there's uh, good reason why. But I do think the contrasts between what Krasatska did in Hey Kiddo and, um, and King of King Court, um, particularly aesthetically, particularly in the ways that the storytelling occurs, are really what make them, you know, what what make this a really interesting um, graphic memoir of family and of pain and love and fatherhood and, and, and masculinity, of, of childhood and experience and how we experience and remember childhood, um, and indeed a reflection, um, as Hey Kiddo was, on addiction and abuse um, and the hope and disappointment that come with that. And so um, it's um, a, a, a really beautiful book. And um, I'm going to dig into it a little bit more deeply um, in a moment. So stick around after this break. Hello, everybody. My name is Mike. And I'm Greg. And together we are Robots from Tomorrow, a twice-weekly podcast appearing at multiversitycomics.com. Each week we take some time to check out books and shelves on Wednesday that are worth your attention. 
and each month we dissect the previous catalog. We also have long-form discussions about books we've enjoyed like Dan Clow's Ghost World and Jack Kirby and Mike Royer's Commanding. And if that's not enough, we also do creator interviews. Some of the talks you'll find in our archives feature Mike Mignola, Leila Del Duca, Sean Martinborough, Emma Beebe, and Greg Rucka. So that's a lot of content for everybody. Please subscribe to Robots from Tomorrow in iTunes or Stitcher so you never miss a thing. Robots from Tomorrow has hours of comic-focused entertainment week in and week out. And now, back to your show. All right. Thanks, Mike and Greg. <laughs> Good reminder that this podcast is part of the MultiversityComics.com network of podcasts. And, um, you know, I'm part of that site. Um, I'm, I'm a uh, sometimes contributor to MultiversityComics.com because um, those folks are just um, really hospitable and um, interested in thinking deeply about comics, sometimes as uh, as as fans, sometimes as nerds, sometimes as uh, critics, uh, you know, they, they wear all hats and take all comers. So um, it's a cool place to check out news and, and interviews and reviews and all that kind of good stuff. All right. So t- excited to talk about King of Kings Court. Uh, king of King Court, I should say. Um, king Court is a location. And uh, <laughs> said king is a is a little kid who you can see depicted on the cover. In fact, if you can see the image that I'll leave on the show notes, you can see that um, cover image that looks a lot like the content inside. Um, and uh, King Court is, of course, a street where one of the houses that the family lives in um, is located. And the kid has uh, this sort of um, Calvin and Hobbes, Calvin-like sort of pointy hair um, that harkens to me to not only Calvin, but Bart Simpson and a whole era of a notion of a, of a kid um, with a, this, all of the sort of fun and creativity and wildness that childhood, um, maybe boyhood particularly, should involve for somebody who grows up um, in a particular era. The book opens um, with a dedication for mom, uh, which is a dedication that becomes more poignant as you read the book. And then declares that it's set in Auburn, Massachusetts, on August uh, 1980. And you know that's uh, that's around the time I was born. <laughs> so childhood is somewhat proximate to Travis Dandros, which he's depicting in this book. And it, the book opens with an image of a, of kid Travis, just as I described him, with that uh, the crown of pointy hair in swim trucks and and those arm floaties you wear around your arms to be able to swim. And he's soaring through the air. And <laughs> looking like having a mess of fun into the arms of a man whose face we can't see. Um, and he's laughing and there's this total joy and mirth on his face. And the images that you see, you know, Travis jumping and then there's a sploosh from the pool. And it ends with this dripping and laughing in the arms of this faceless and shirtless man. You know, they're, they're loosely connected to each other. And our minds sort of fill the gaps, um, make up the gaps with the kind of closure, as Scott McCloud called it. And, and, and in the next page, you know, even more so, actually, we're treated not so much to like a sequence of, of actions, but really a set of images that we piece together. A pool house, an umbrella, a half-eaten sandwich, a driver in a car. And there are these fragments of interlocking moments, as if memories sort of strung together, moments of memories strung together. That as, re- you know, readers we can, can kind of easily put them together the way that memory works. Um, and it's, you know, I think a, a kind of storytelling and a kind of device, sort of the camera flashing or panning to these 
spots of the setting that manga uses really effectively and that I think Western comics have um, have also done and, and have maybe borrowed from, from manga and put to good use. And I think what's interesting about its use in this book is that it becomes a reflection of the way that memory works, especially our memories of childhood and our memories as children. It's this fleeting moment or that one that we piece together. And for us, though, the memories are selective. You've experienced this if you've ever gone back to a place that you only went to as a kid. And it's it's weird, you know, the way I experience it. And for me, it's it's very much what I associate with going back to Taiwan, which is where I lived as a small kid. We moved away and immigrated here. And then when I went back more than a decade later, there were things that were so familiar, and yet they had been so buried because all of the sort of, you know, between this memory and that, everything that was in between had been lost to my memory. So it was this strange familiarity and unfamiliarity. And I feel like the memories that Dandro, um, you know, renders in this book, not only these, you know, little moments of fun with dad at the pool, but really all of the spaces in between are where so much of the, the, the both the, the tenderness and the tension of this book live. Um, and so this is King of King Court's kind of storytelling style, right? It, it's, a, it's an account of memory and experience of childhood. And so there's a sense where time is, is transitory, even fleeting. And these pieces of memory are each so vivid, but they're also reconstructed. And, and in a way that it seems so, you know, authentically true, but, but, but also leave this question for the adult rememberer. It, is it really true? Did it really happen that way? On the cover of the book, um, Travis is, you know, rendered, drawn as a kid who has eyes but no pupils. And, and that's actually, uh, you know, throughout the book, right? We see there's just um, so much life and personality. Travis seems really, really human. And yet there's something almost um, hauntingly not quite there because of those missing pupils in the eyes, you know? And if you're thinking about, you know, Charles Schultz or, or, or Bill Watterson's Calvin and Hobbes, those pupils are so essential to cartooning, but the, the missing pupils in Dandro's eyes seems an intentional artistic choice, right? It, it's almost like there's something there that represents the quandary of cartoon memoirs that that in some ways it's a first, per, you know, it's kind of first person narrative, but you, you almost can't have a true first person. And the blank eyes with no pupils seem to represent that, that kind of subjectivity, this kind of weird mix of third person and first person. Um, I, I get the sense also about 35 pages into the book, um, there's a scene where little Travis is holding an egg and he's startled by a print of the Mona Lisa hanging on the wall and how the Mona Lisa's eyes, you know, seem to follow him and seem to move around. So startling that it makes him kind of to, to drop this egg. It's a, you know, raw egg, right? And then the next page, there's a huge spread of the Mona Lisa, but like as a giant. <laughs> and, and the Mona Lisa is, is holding him um, in, 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 in her hands. And then there's a small image on the on this two-page spread of the broken egg, and then the next of you know almost as like a shadowed Dandro, little little Travis fleeing, right? And I, I, I honestly I, I'm not entirely certain of my reading, and maybe if you could explain it in words, then you wouldn't put it in pictures. But I really take that to be about the wise 
and the knowing smile and the eyes of Mona Lisa being everything that Travis doesn't have access to as a kid, right? It's that, you know, that sort of all-knowing sense, that little smirk of, of yes, I get what's going on, where, but, but Travis lives in a world that Travis experiences, but, but, you know, can he access, can he see what's going on? Or like all children in their innocence, right? Can, is that actually impossible? Is it impossible to, to have that um, knowledge, right? That allows you to grin at the world, right? Or, and to have that sort of objective distance that is actually impossible for us to get, get to, right? And in fact, you know, the way the scene is drawn, the Mona Lisa, there's even something kind of terrifying about the Mona Lisa as this sort of giant cradling him, right? Or as you look at that drawing, there's the landscape behind the Mona Lisa and the realism of that landscape is such a contrast to the cartooning of the book. And it seems so other to that kind of subjective, you know, cartoon reality that is for us in the, as we read the book, that's Travis's consciousness, that's Travis's memory. And, you know, on the very next page, we see it's it, it kind of represented because <laughs> after this, frightening encounter with the Mona Lisa we see little Travis watching the Flintstones and drawing a, a pretty darn good Fred Flintstone right and then dashing up off to school and he's picking his nose on the bus and he's wiping his booger out the front of the seat and we're sort of back into the cartoon reality subjectivity that we've been living in after this brief excursion into the Mona Lisa and and all that says to me speaks to me that there's this intention with the blank eyes, the pupilless eyes of little Travis, that I feel like I'm looking into someone's very powerful subjectivity, which is mediated by cartooning. That's so fascinating to me how cartooning can do that. Um, and all throughout the book, there is art that is, um, you know, again, just deceptively simple, so that there's this feeling in, in the art of the simplicity of childhood, you know, um, there's ways that characters are drawn and, you know, even scenes that are full of um, impact and violence. The moment where Travis's father, um, you know, uh, kind of strung out is um, pounding on a door in terrifying fashion, demanding Travis back from his mother um, in, a, in a kind of, you know, drug influenced uh, uh, tantrum. And it's really a terrifying scene, but but it's really drawn with two full body figures and this you know line in the middle that's meant to represent a door, and so you know it's a scene that I I can imagine and have you know uh, uh, been in similar situations that there's something terrible terrible and terrifying about the reality of it, and yet in my mind and in in especially a kind of childhood subjective consciousness when you render it onto the page, it's it's that simple, right? There's something about that simplicity of cartooning that is, um, it's, it's kind of like lurking these notes in the background and then increasingly intruding into this innocence in the foreground as this specter of his father's unpredictability, this intrusion of this very adult situation in their life. Um, Travis's birth father, who he calls Dad Dave, um, works at uh, AC, H.C. Pond Lumber uh, with his brother. And um, besides being hardworking, besides being, uh, as I said, very doting and, and kind of uh, 
propensity for to grab Travis and you know take him on the road to do something wild and fun. He's also shown lifting weights in his basement, and then and then we see in that moment as he's lifting weights this really haunting ghost of a suicide that we come to later find out is his brother's suicide, right? And so we see, we know we see you know there is a, a nod. an empathetic nod to the ghosts that haunt dad dave and then from there we we see the the pills that he turns to and again rendering this um and i'm looking on page 66 if you haven't had the book with you dandro uses negative space and contrast and things like that to convey the effect of this spaciousness um or to use panel borders and the space that a character is, you know, is is inhabiting, to have this sense of this hyper enclosed claustrophobia, where you know, in the ways that a character fits on a panel, or sits within a scene with maybe a large expanse of wall or something that just almost blocks, obscures our view. There's things that are blocked off and things that are revealed. That remind me, and <laughs> I'm not a film buff, so somebody is going to be able to immediately, you know, uh, uh, point to a better, you know, uh, filmic reference. But I, I'm reminded of of the director Wong Kar Wong Kar Wai, um, whose movies like In the Mood for Love, I just found so um, uh, surprising. I think in the ways that they moved me, you know, Wong would often have these off off-center camera shots that that you know maybe panned across a moment but so much of that moment was obscured by you know curtains and walls almost like it's a mistake you know almost like oops we bumped the camera and focused on the wrong thing but somehow in doing that they it really seemed to heighten the emotional intensity of a scene you know it would be an actor and an actress who were um in the, in a small room and, you know, much of the screen space eaten up by, again, like a, a red painted wall. But there's just so much emotion in the the tension of the claustrophobia of that moment, right? Without without an over-reliance, and, and obviously Wong was working with incredible actors, but without an over-reliance on close-ups of faces, and certainly not certainly not a reliance, over-reliance on words, in fact, often in direct contrast to the words that characters were saying, so that by the shot, um, by the the mise en scene, mise en scene, <laughs> and by by the framing of the of the shot, you know, it's almost as if sometimes in, in a kind of betrayal of the words. And I think Dandro uses that kind of thing so effectively, where there are these moments that we're sure that there is a lot of affection, and yet, you know, in some ways that that all of it is rendered. There's a there's this like cloud of fear and then other moments that are clearly terrifying and yet there's this shade of regret or longing or even love um and all of it just makes me think about how child subjectivity is not a simple one of just like innocence lost right but of the the perceptions we have as kids of taking in like you know real people our our, our mothers and fathers and stepfathers and siblings and they're lodged in these these moments, these places, these these um, situations that are full of emotional weight. You know, and, and I'm kind of going on about this because I love Jared Krasatska's book. Um, I loved um, 
just that really raw and honest exploration of the, you know, the, the genuine conflictual feeling when you have an addict in your family. Um, I'm referring to Hey Kiddo, of course, last year, which I think was recently nominated for some more awards. I think maybe a Harvey Award and stuff like that. And, and um, just a really great book. Um, but it's interesting that Krasaska, who has, of course, this kid-like cartooning style, if you're familiar with what's made Jira Krasaska famous and also a ton of money. You know, it's like this, it's like his kid, kid, kid series, his kid comic series, right? This lunch lady series, you know? And so Krasaska certainly has this, you know, kid-like cartooning style. And I would put that kind of cartooning up against what Dandro's doing here, um, you know, much more readily. But but in 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 uh, Hey Kiddo, you know, he kind of adopts a more mature, quote unquote, mature style of art. And you know, but in many ways, I think Dandro retains this kid like style, but includes all the f bombs, <laughs> you know, and 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 I don't know, heroin or whatever needles and and violence and really the psychological terror and trauma, and does it in this. You know, when I say kid-like style, I don't, I, I don't say that as an insult to that. I think it's very intentional, right? So that in the reader's consciousness, like as I read this, these like cartooning signals of childhood are placed right beside these signals of adult pain and violence. Because I think in reality, in the reality that's depicted here, in, in, in memory for a kid, they are inseparable. Yeah. And, and I think about, as a kid, seeing things that you know, watching cartoons one moment and then seeing something that really, as a kid, I had no business seeing. And they are also this strange mash of inseparability. And I don't know, I, I feel like King of King Court does that so well. Um, and there's a lot of ambivalence in that. And I think that's part of the maturity of the book. You know, I think that there's some ways where King of King Court is ironic as a name, you know, there's a, a way where, um, in some moments of the book, Travis, little Travis is, you know, catered to and cared for like a king with all of these adults around caring for him. And then in other ways and in other moments where, um, it seems as though, uh, you might be the possessor of, of many things and, and, of great lands, um, but actually everything is completely out of your control. Um, I think it's also just a really fascinating depiction of addiction. When we read the book, we see some interiority of Dad Dave, uh, the things that he imagines, you know, that must have, things that I think Travis imagines that, that must have pained him. And even though, again, we never have access to really seeing his pupils, uh, Dad Dave is always wearing sunglasses, and I, you know I don't know if that's sort of like the real D Dad Dave um, and and sort of a, a habit of his. In fact, I I kind of wonder if the idea of little Travis having no pupils and not being able to access his eyes to be able to you know assume or read his his emotions from from his eyes is actually sort of the cartooning version of what he experienced of a Dad Dave who always wore sunglasses and never gave that access. Right, um, but I, when I say it's such a, such a powerful rendition of addiction, it's it's I think what I've been saying about this combination of the terror 
You know, the terror of the moment when when Dad Dave's earnest love for his son is combined with like this terrifying desperation as an addict and you know despite police orders he's slamming on the door and threatening to break the effing door down um and there's a two-page spread on pages uh around 176 or 178 or something like that um that is just so um powerfully moving and you know in the end i think the book is just profoundly empathetic without letting anyone off the hook. Um, I think, you know, without giving too much away, I, I think Dandro is both um, uh, holding accountable and speaking some dark truths about his family, um, but in a way that doesn't feel like an act of rejection. It feels actually like the whole story is an act of confession, of saying, these are people who made me. Um, these are struggles that made me, and this is this is me. This is who I. This is what I come from. Um, so it's a, it's a beautiful book, um, and I think really profound in the way that it utilizes cartooning. Um, I'd love to know what you think of of King of King Court. Um, as you can tell, I I think it's really interesting, and um, just of course the the content warning that there's a lot in there that. Um, you know, if if um, familial violence and things like that are part of your experience, just sort of be be heads up about that. Um, no doubt you've figured that out by now. Um, but I think that uh, for people who are interested in um, stories of addiction or or childhood memoirs in, in graphic narrative form, it's an absolutely fascinating book um, and in many ways fun. I I, I just breeze through many pages um, and like some of my favorite stories uh, in manga uh, some of the best comics that I read you can read it fast and finish it in a sitting and then you can go back and take each scene in with I think um, a lot of profound reward so King of King Court Travis Dundro drawn in quarterly um, check it out all right take a little break and then come back to talk about some new comics new comics all right All right, quick programming note, just to say that um, this episode, like the last episode, is part of the return of the comic syllabus, which uh, I tend for now to go um, to come bi-weekly, um, or rather bi-monthly, every other week, whatever. <laughs> um, and, um, and I'm not always intending to be alone, it's not always meant to be a monologue. Um, I have some um, friends lined up in the future to talk with me about some books lined up in the future. So uh, you, can, you can look forward to that. Um, but friends who are listening, I thank you for just continuing to listen and supporting the show. It's, it's great. It's been, it was really great to hear after last episode and after the previous one that's on the feed um, where I um, you know, talked a little bit about Derek Parker Royal from the Comics Alternative um, and our partnership and his legacy. Um, it's really great to hear from all of you and to reconnect with some of you after having been away for a while. So thanks. All right. 
This is NCBD Notes and why I, um, you know, I talked at the top of the episode about why I think of it as notes. I'm trying to take some soundings of what's out there on the shelves right now. And uh, I have been reading um, a lot of comics, <laughs> as I always do. Um, and, and uh, you know, kind of coupling it always with other things that I'm reading, Um it just randomly other things I've been reading. Um, I've been rereading the, Tommy Orange's book There There, um, a novel about uh, American Indians in Oakland, and uh, you know, going to teach that and work on that with the teachers that I I get the privilege to teach. And um, if you haven't read Ocean Vong's um, On Earth, We're Briefly Gorgeous, um, prepared to be broken into pieces. Um, that book is just um, knocking me out. I'm about two-thirds of the way through it, and I, I have to take a break between every chapter because it just kills me. Um, Vong is a poet and writes at, like, like such, and so um, it's pretty powerful. Anyway, <laughs> that was a tangent. <laughs> way to kick off the new segment, Paul. <laughs> so, so comics I've been reading. Um, some things that came out on the 14th of this month, and we're in August 2019 here, in case you're listening to it in the future. Are um, have gotten me thinking about tales of sword and sorcery. Um, I mean, comics, of course, are full of genre stuff, and I've thought a lot about why uh, being a fan um, of realistic fiction and and stuff like that, and literary fiction, and 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 wondering why in comics I have to get in touch with the genre sides of me, and of course, a lot of it is just like way more visually interesting to draw other worlds and things that are fantastic and not things that you could just go out your door and take a picture of, right? So um, so that's part of the reason, right? Why um, fantasy, magic, um, science fiction, robots, you know, superpowers populate the comics shelves. But I think there's more to it than that. And I think that comics' predilection for that kind of story also is, you know, also contributes significantly to how the genre works in our culture, why the genre is a hotbed of a certain kind of story and or certain kinds of story i should say and those stories tend to have the place that they have in culture right i mean i'm reading in a lot of independent comics and certainly i do read a lot of like big two superheroes things that i pay attention to spider-man not being in the mcu and all that business too so um don't get me wrong about that um in fact i've been reading a lot of you know Tanahasi Coates's Black Panther and Captain America work and Marvel and um, you know this and that uh, going on at DC and stuff so that's on my mind too but but I'm also paying a lot of attention to other things for example um, Boom Studios came out with um, a book called Once in Future um, and I am googling right now because I know that Kieran Gillen is the is the writer and that the artist is um, uh, someone I know well <laughs> I'm blanking on it. Of course, Dan Mora, uh, Eisner winner Dan Mora of Klaus, Klaus fame, um, which there's a book, uh, Klaus book out this week, actually, if you're a follower and a fan of that, but just didn't quite fit within my topic right now. Anyway, uh, Gillen and Mora's Once in Future is a kind of retelling or a revisiting in modern times of the old Arthurian legend with question interesting question and a slight bit of spoiler to issue one of you know whether that those originary national tales have 
really deeply problematic seeds within them. Um, and, and that question, you know, not an academic one, but one that, of course, woven into the action of the story, Arthur is returning, as always promised in those Arthurian tales, and whether or not that is a good thing or actually um, a dark coming is uh, open to question. And within that question is also embedded this bigger question of how good is the Arthur legend um, the England that it um, represents uh, or or that it, that came from it um, the, the the thing that we take for granted as a matter of, of pride and heroism uh, is that problematic itself um, and of course there's um, something there's of course a, a lot to question and to think deeply about about the uh, empire upon which the sun never set um, in view of uh, now a, a post-colonial lens in which to see the um, not only the glories, of course, of the empire, but um, the, the horrors that are wrought on peoples. And so I, that, that really got me thinking about sword and sorcery and what we as modern creators and as a comics-consuming culture do with these elements, these elements of sword and sorcery that, I mean, you know, I watch Game of Thrones just like anyone else. Uh, I, you know, um, buckled and, 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 and flinched and, you know, left with an upset stomach at, you know, the, the scenes of, of, of sexual violence and things like that as well, like everyone else. And, and I think that there's a lot of, um, a lot of good questions to be asked about what these tales represented in terms of um, establishing or instantiating or furthering um, ideas about foreigners and others, ideas about women and masculinity, ideas about savagery and and um, and you know um, and subjugated peoples. And I think that there's it's it's so interesting that so many comics creators. Um, and let's face it, you know, increasingly diverse, but still many of them, white men, <laughs> are writing in these genres that inevitably have this haunting remnant of Eurocentrism and of what we now call toxic masculinity and gender politics and, and racial dynamics that, plainly stated, you know, most creators would have s severe problems with and, in fact, probably think of themselves as trying to work against. And so what do you do with those genres? What do you do with those tropes? Um, one interesting instance of that, an example of that, has been reading um, Red Sonia. So I've been reading Red Sonia from Dynamite um, because I think the artist is maybe Bob Q and maybe some other artists, but it's been written by Mark Russell. And I've come to really enjoy Mark Russell's writing um, since learning about uh, him via the DC series Prez, but, you know, through the Snagglepuss and... Um, uh, the Flintstones series that was just such biting satire. And I uh, also read this, the, the Lone Ranger series that Russell wrote for, for um, Dynamite. Again, I think with artist Bob Q. And I'm just totally fascinated by Russell's take on Red Sonja, a character who, just by the cover optics, <laughs> not normally um, has caught my attention. I don't know deeply the history um i've read i read gail simone's run uh, writing the book for a long time and thought that was really interesting i think simone as a feminist figure is really really uh 
fascinating. Um, I don't always love the work and I, and I don't always love the commentary that comes with it, but I'm always, um, I always am sort of put in my, in my place by it, um, in a really good way. And, uh, and, and I welcome that, um, for someone to say back to me, you know, nay, you don't get to decide what, what I get to be. Um, Gail Simone's work has always sort of done that for me and, and I enjoy the experience. And I think Russell's Red Sonia has a certain, um, well, I, I, I guess I should probably describe it in the series. Um, Red Sonia is, um, Sonia, I don't know how you refer to this character, <laughs> um, is, is sort of returns to um, a small land, a, a kind of, um, uh, you know, not super powerful or, or not super fertile um, kingdom, mini kingdom, um, whatever, that she turns out has a, a blood um, claim to to being the, the leader of. Of course, uh, you know, she finds this out or whatever, she returns to it at a moment where um, that that group, that kingdom, that land is about to be um, conquered by this great, you know, empire building conquer, you know, in, in the vein of your Alexander the Greats or, or whoever. And so um, it's kind of her as a political leader with having to apply, you know, strategic and military savvy and also a lot of sort of political um, astuteness. And, you know, just seeing Russell, what is just what a smart writer um, Mark Russell is to, to put this character, put to this character in, in, in this role of being kind of crafty and in some ways, you know, really noble and self-sacrificing, but also, you know, emotionally invested character is really fascinating and fascinating again for me in the ways that it both um, sort of uh, heightens those notes of what this whole sword and sorcery business can be and also has to tone down these other notes that are part of the intrigue of the character for past generations for certain audiences um, and I know I, I just wonder like who is Mark Russell writing for certainly writing for others who maybe like him, others who would be open to um, a different and maybe a subversive way of telling this Red Sonia story. And I, you know, I don't know. I don't know how, how um, backward the original Red Sonia stories are. Um, I think she seems like she's always been a, a figure of strength um, and of defiant strength and so on. But I just think that the, the politics of writing that are, are um, really require a lot of thought. And I think that's it's interesting to see the way that that story is unfolding. Anyway, it's also been an enjoyable story. Um, and, uh, and one that I think is coming to a, a close, um, I believe. So um, that's Mark Russell's Red Sonia work um, from Dynamite. Um, you know, another one that's got me thinking about this is, is I've been reading the first two issues have been out from Image Comics of Justin Jordan and um, Rebecca Isaacs and Alex Gumaris um, book Reaver. Um, so Reaver number one and two um, are out. Uh, I think Reaver two came out on the 14th. And Reaver is a, <laughs> um, I, I guess it's a, it's a, so it's, it's, a, it's an own, it's in its own sort of medievalish world right and there is a um, new land called madaras and it's been settled and colonized and there's a war going on within it sort of two year 200 years after it's um, settled after it's colonized 
And so there's, um, there's war and fighting going on between different people groups. And so I, I would say that the pitch is kind of Suicide Squad in Conan land, you know, or in Game of Thrones land with some, as they talk about in the letters pages, like some pre-Civil War America ge- geopolitics and then some kind of like, you know, Mordor, Eye of Sauron elements of a mission sprinkled in. Essentially, you know, it's a motley crew of a bunch of prisoners who are released and sent on a mission and actually in very Suicide Squad-like fashion have this, you know, mechanism of, you know, do the do our bidding or, or die at the end of the day, you know. Um, and so they're sent on this mission to kind of, uh, 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 you know, to the to sort of Eye, eye of Sauron um comparison in this thing and traveling through a a land where as i alluded to with the pre-civil war geopolitics this this uh these various factions and groups are clearly and this is still being unpacked you know um clearly kind of uh uh playing out some some political differences and responses of subjugated peoples and things like that so it's an interesting series. Um, it you know it re- still relies a lot on that those plot um, premise mechanics and the sort of quippiness of this ragtag group of you know suicide squad suicide squad like uh, characters who um, you know there's the, the the big strong guy and then the sort of killer and and uh, and the character on the beautiful Becky Cloonan cover of the first issue who. You know, I think uh, it you know turns out to be a sort of um, cannibalistic wild woman. Uh, so, so you know, in in mashing all of these pieces together, I think uh, uh, creators have are doing something really interesting and and unique um, that I'm following. I'm I'm kind of interested in in going along with it. But I think as I was reading, I kind of feel a little bit of what people have expressed as, you know, every image premise is its own new world with new configurations and and sort of, you know, the, the genre pots that we're pulling from, that we're drawing from, are, are starting to hit the bottom a little bit with these many image series. And so what will you do that will be really interesting? And I think a lot of the best image series of the last few years have managed something really interesting and i just am curious how you know jordan and isaacs and Wimaris and company will pull off something that um similar to what i think i was looking for in red sonia and found um use the same genre tropes and yet manage a kind of a subversion of the uh, the elements of those genres that um can have, have grown i think really tired and really need to be um, reinvested, recycled, um, uh, sort of, um, you know, challenged for what they tended to prop up. Um, I'm looking at the clock and promised myself I wouldn't go too long about this. I'm curious what your responses are to, to what I'm sharing about. And and part of my curiosity extends to what you would think if you've had a chance or you've been following um, different series that are, you know, I think doing similar um, <laughs> kinds of subversions of expectations and um, much of it, I think, uh, revolving around how do we break down uh, the, the assumptions or the expectations that the, the heroic figures or, or the, the anti-heroes are male, 
and much of it being tied to assertions of masculinity and also the the sort of racial components, the components that are about um, empire and conquest and um, and other othered peoples. Um, I'm curious about that in a series like Forgotten Queen, which is deeply tied into valiant um, lore and mythology. Um, but to me, you know, it seems like Valiant is doing a lot of experimentation and thought in this area. Their creators are doing it, but I never quite seem to land with where they're going. And maybe it's that there are too many factors in their mythos and in their world that allow them to plug into that mythos, but then evade the actual politics. Um, I don't know if that's a fair judgment. Um, I also, this last week, uh, have been reading Fair Lady, and Fair Lady's, I think, final issue um, came out. It's a it's an image creator-owned series from Brian Shermer and Claudia Balboni and Marissa Luis. It's um, been really good. Um, it's sort of a episodic. Um, each issue is its own story in the detective uh, fiction sort of PI, private eye fiction um, mode. I mean, that's the structure of the narrative, and there's a whole lot of elements to it, including the voiceover and including the sort of setups and and premises that um, you know are clearly in that genre. But um, all within the uh, the clothing, uh, the the externalities of a kind of fantasy world where um, the hero, who is a private eye, is also a sword wielding, um, you know, buffed and awesome woman who um, has a cat. <laughs> a cat-like uh, human, cat-human, cat-person-like friend um, who <laughs> appears far too little in these stories for my liking, to be honest. I would love to see more of this uh, cat friend, um, but, if, but it, it is populated by other characters who are who really pretty interesting, too. So Fair Lady is a series, if you haven't been reading them as individual issues, um, yeah, I think it's not renewed <laughs> or its creators are not planning to do more because of because of sales, which is really sad. Um, and maybe we can give it a boost and support it as it's coming out in trade. But I think that, too, for its use and then subversion of fantasy tropes is um, a question mark for me. I'm curious what people think. And, and the last uh, in this area, which has been one that's been really fun and cool and exciting. And again, to save breath and time, I won't um, go deeply into it, um, but is, um, is uh, a, a book from Vault Comics called Sarah and the Royal Stars. That's S-E-R-A, Sarah. Um, and it is, um, yeah, it's just really really good i mean the art is fantastic um there's some like sort of fantasy backstory that i'm still piecing together uh, writer is john sui and uh that's t-s-u-e-i sui and um art by audrey mock and um it is just a a gorgeous book i love the the design choices of the characters their clothing um i think that there are touchstones of different parts of the you know, um, Asian and uh, South Asian, Central Asian world, Central Asian maybe particularly world, and um, uh, as the as the plot summary is <laughs> is given, civil war going on in an empire and a famine striking, and so Princess Sarah um, has a her own personal. <laughs> a deity no that's that's not right uh there's a there's a god uh mitra who is 
um, sending her on a mission to find the royal stars, and so she has to leave behind her her own troops. Um, so it's that kind of a story, and you know we're not deep into it. There's a lot of mysteries still to unpack, but um, there's something I think that seems um, really um, uh, exciting about just the the art style and the narrative style. I'm kind of along for this ride, and um, I think it's just um, more than anything a beautiful book whose optics give away some of the commitments of the creators, and I feel like it will be a, a fun, a good story. Um, so yeah, if you haven't checked that out, um, talk to your comic shop, get some Vault Comics in your shop, um, and check out Sarah and the Royal Stars, and let me know what you think. Second issue is coming out, as I said, this week, I think, August 28th. So I'd love to talk more about that and hear from some of y'all about it. Um, speaking of that, you can always hit me up on Twitter at 2ply, T-W-O-P-L-A-I, I'm on Instagram at the same, Tuply, um, or Comic Syllabus has a Facebook group. All of these links are in the show notes. And um, would love to hear your thoughts about um, King of King Court. Uh, would love to hear your thoughts about some of the books that I mentioned. Um, I'm also reading a lot of other stuff, um, including looking forward to Pumpkinheads from Rainbow Rowell and Faith Aaron Hicks, and looking forward to the new Science Comics books. Uh, one about cats. Um, Dogman Seven is out. <laughs> I have kid. I have a kid. That's a thing. Um, and lots of other stuff out there. Um, in fact, uh, some of it you'll hear from me soon about in in the upcoming episodes of the syllabus. Um, but here we are. I hope you are enjoying your comics reading life, and I would love to engage with some of y'all uh, loyal listeners about um, comics that you're reading. So get in touch. Okay. All right. Have a great couple of weeks and let's keep reading.